0: Hello, my name is Jeff Salzman. I operate the vintagevolts.com website, a site whose purpose is to remind, educate people, and reminisce over what are now considered vintage electronic items, which have served a range of purposes from entertainment, hobbies, education, scientific, and the like. In this podcast episode, you're about to hear, I speak openly in sort of a free thinking fireside chat style. There's no script. I simply discuss memories and anecdotes leading from one subject to another. In future podcasts, I will use more of a structured format, mixed with their share of personal memories, and maybe even memories derived from listener feedback. I would like to personally thank Rob O'Hara of the You Don't Know Flack podcast for encouraging me to get my podcast off the ground. Actually, Rob sent a couple of his goons over to my house, and they threatened me by saying that I better start recording something soon. Otherwise, and I quote, it would be a shame if something would happen to that mint condition Commodore SX-64 computer you have over there. But don't tell anybody I told you that. Just, just enjoy, enjoy the show. All links mentioned in the podcast will be in the show notes. Thank you. Hello everybody, and welcome to this edition of Vintage Volts. Today I want to talk about a history of electronics. Not necessarily the history of electronics, but a history of electronics. A history where everybody seems to have their own special version. For example, look around the room where you're at. Uh, Or if you're in the car, look around your car, look at the electronics in the dashboard, Look at the TV and radio in the room. Uh, if you're outside, you can look around and even see some of the signs on the stores, whether they're lit by a simple fluorescent light or whether they're modern LED array multicolor moving screens. Everywhere you see an electronic device, there's a history that got it to where it is today. Now, I'm recording this podcast in my workshop, and anybody who's been following my tweets and you know, reading my Facebook posts have probably seen some of the stuff that I have here, or at least um, seen what I had written about them. I look around this room and I see an awful lot of electronics, from simple things like, you well, know, there's a mouse in front of my computer keyboard. I see battery chargers. I see joystick controllers from older PCs. I see older PCs. Uh, From here I can see some Commodore 64 boxes. I can see a Commodore Amiga computer, a TRS-80 model 4, a Texas Instruments TI-99 with expansion box, Uh, There's one of the original Candy iMacs, the the all-in-one units that had the colored cases. This one just happens to be orange with a purple keyboard. I see a Cisco router, a 24-port network hub. Uh, Looking to the other room, I see pinball machines. I see an arcade game. I see a ROW 3500 change machine. I even see an old rotary telephone. Now, that's my collection. There's a lot more here that I can see. You probably have a collection of your own, of electronic items. Now, like many other people, um, even though I appreciate vintage electronics, I also like, you know, what's new, what's upcoming. I like to, if I can afford to, I like to be one of the uh, first adopters of new technologies. I just can't always do that, and I have to you know, pick and choose which newer technology I want to be a part of. But someday, that new technology is going to be old. The question is, what does history think of it? What do individual people think about it throughout history? Some, some pretty much don't care, and that's okay. I mean, nobody's expected to collect and keep every little item That they have, whether it's electronic or not. For the most part, I did not do that. Usually it broke, and um, most likely it was uh, by my own tinkering that an item would break in the past. So, you know, I would throw it away. And when I was younger, I didn't care so much because there's always going to be new stuff. And as I got older, um, as with many people who get older, they kind of remember the stuff that they had. And for some people, it's just just as much as well as a cherished memory than it is to actually have the item i sometimes like to buy my childhood and find an exact you know replica or duplicate of something that i had that i enjoyed that has memories tied to it and i'll go to the usual places like ebay or thrift shops or you know antique stores now You know, it's not all just wooden chairs and metal tables. It's, you know, older electronic devices, like old, uh, you know, tabletop kitchen radios. There are items that I like to collect and I like to keep uh, because it has the certain memories attached to it. And because I still have a little bit of shelf space left, right? So that's why I wanted to talk about a history of electronics As I said before, everybody has their own personal history when it comes to electronic devices. Let's start with something simple. A radio. Whether it's the radio in your car, the radio in your kitchen, the radio or stereo system that might be in your living room or or, um, den, or even out in the garage. You have a radio there because you wanted entertainment. But radios tend to activate that part of the memory associated with music Now, it's been told before that music listening to a certain song can really trigger certain memories and like oh I heard that song before or I forgot about that song you, you know, you've said it to yourself many times when you're listening to the radio and you just remember one point in time or more than one point in time now, modern radio can do that just as well as an old-fashioned radio. Sight unseen, you're listening to a radio through headphones, or, you know, you could be listening to a, a song on your uh, your iPod, but it still brings back memories. Now, for some people who like to tie those memories into something a little more tangible, it's, it's kind of nice when you hear the song on an actual radio that you would have normally heard that song before. And I have posted on my YouTube channel this old, uh, it's, it's just a basic AMFM radio, something that somebody would have had in their uh, kitchen counter in the 70s. And what I thought was interesting about that, I, I actually recorded the video because when I turned it on to see if it worked... Remember this radio is from about the 70s. I I heard the song was it Stayin' Alive, Night Fever? I forget what it was. I heard a BG song. Uh, I'll put a link to the to the video in the show notes. And it's when I look at that link that I'll remember what it was, but I do remember it was a BG song. And you know, and and that's the kind of music that would have probably come out of that radio when it was sitting on somebody's kitchen counter or on their desk in their in their den so that's that's memories mixed in with you know a tangible good you see you get kind of the tactile feel from it you hear the music i mean it just it steps you right back into the 70s again so those are the stronger memories not just you remember that song from the 70s and you remember hearing it It was popular. Uh, You got up early for school. Breakfast was being made. And you'd always hear certain songs on the radio before you went to school. Because those were the popular ones at the time. And it just draws in those memories. Same thing with TV. Now, of course, TV isn't something that you can always just listen to. Some people do. I I remember when I was younger, I used to take my cassette recorder. the, the, The single cassette recorder and hold it up to the TV speaker and record TV shows. I I think I recorded a lot of Gilligan's Island shows that way. And then later on, I would listen to them. But back then, the, the visual images were fresh in my mind. So I could listen to a TV show and sort of watch it in my mind. Then again, I could have done the same thing, just recording songs from the radio So I had my own mixtape. My own favorite songs were recorded. So I didn't need to have the visual so much. But at least I had the recording of the the songs that I wanted. But with real TV, for the most part, you have to be able to see what it is that goes along with the audio. Now the difference between today's TVs, which are mostly flat panel, and of course they use the new high-def broadcasting standards... Uh, not the old NTSC standards is there. There's a there's a disconnect in the experience of what TV was like. It's very hard to reminisce about an old TV show that is re-displayed on a high definition screen that doesn't have those tiny black lines going through the screen, you know, because of the differences in technology. Older TVs. Uh, the, the, the ones that were the large tubes, or even the, uh, some of the rear projection televisions. The NTSC standard had so many lines that it could basically draw an image. And between those lines, on a lot of tubes, if you looked real close at the tube itself, you'd see a lot of red, green, blue dots on rows, and all those rows separated by just a, a tiny fraction of a black line, but you could distinctly see the rows. And that just kind of created a certain visual effect. No matter how much money you spend on a TV, they can only make that look so clear. And TV shows of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that's what we lived with. The biggest joy we got out of a high-quality television was um, how well they could define the picture. But it was still the same signal that fed that picture there's only so much resolution available in the old NTSC uh, video standards or for those listening um, elsewhere in the world you also have PAL and I believe it's pronounced CCAM whatever the standard there was only so much resolution available so the memories that we get looking at the old television shows for the most part you're used to looking at them through a picture tube, a glass picture tube Um, little bit of curvature to the screen all that uh, the reflection off the screen that you know has the slight curve in the reflection all that is a memory of how you used to enjoy entertainment just recently I've been trying to catch up on some old TV shows that are now made available on like Netflix or uh, Amazon video or Hulu and I only have two tube televisions in this house I, I keep them just for enjoyment to play the old uh, the old console games like the Ataris and Colecovisions just to experience it the way I did but for actual watching television I, it's mostly flat panel screens so I was watching um, what was it Amazon Prime Video has um, The Bionic Woman seasons 1 and 2 and I was watching one of the seasons. And although it was enjoyable to see that television show again, something was missing. And it took a while for me to realize what that was. And it it just happened to be, I'm watching it through a high-quality streaming broadcast with the introduction of basically flat spots of color in, in the um, compression you, you sometimes get large splotches of color in a compressed video signal but that's what we have to live with today Is that's our distortion, it's not the lines through the tube anymore, it's, it's the splotchiness of a, um, of a distorted video compression because we have bandwidth issues that we can't send you know, high quality images all down the uh, the internet, you know, at the same high quality that we're, we're so used to if we're watching it off of a DVD. You know, there's there's going to be quality issues involved in streaming video. And I was looking at that and said, no, that's, that's not why it looks different. That's why I'm not getting, you know, it's good to see the show, but I'm not getting what I remembered from the show. But it was a realization that I'm watching this on a flat panel screen that kind of broke away from the the memory, the visualization I was used to. Although it did bring to mind I grew up in the in the 70s, uh, early 80s, I started not watching as much television, but television was my thing during the 70s. Television and radio. I I didn't have a computer until the 80s. Um, that would, you know, take up a lot of my time. So, every weeknight there was primetime television. Uh, mid, mid to late 70s. Well, Bionic Woman was one of them. Um, Emergency was another one. Uh, Six Million Dollar Man, which was the, you know, what the Bionic Woman was a spinoff of. All those television shows they they came they came the same way. Um, they would they would show in prime time, and everybody would gather around the family TV, which in our family was a 25 inch TV. That was the big console television 25 inches today 25 inch TV would be considered small and we would watch the show in its entirety it was a school night so the show would run from 8 to 9 p.m. and it was time to go to bed at 9 p.m. and I absolutely had to I insisted as as the show was ending uh, I would always have to remind my parents that I need to see the scenes for next week Because at the end of the TV shows, they showed you dramatic clips uh, from next week's show to, you know, of course, make you come back and watch next week's show. But those were what were called the scenes. And we would watch the scenes and then we'd go to bed. And wake up in the morning and, of course, people were making breakfast and music's coming through the radio, creating new memories, visual and... uh, auditory memories and that's why I have this podcast is to uh, share some of my memories um, perhaps solicit some memories from you the listeners maybe maybe you forgot about something and or other people have forgot stuff and somebody else brings up a hey, do you remember this? Do you remember what this looked like? Or do you remember us having these things? Or this was all the rage at the time. And other people would say, yeah, I knew those. Or I had this, I had that. I like doing this with, with mine. Or I forgot about that. You know, I, I hear it all the time. that In a, almost any hobby or any collection or anything retro, there's a, a lot of that going on. And I just wanted to keep the focus on electronics. Because electronics is kind of what I did all my life. Uh, or at least... You know, let me say it again. At least since age 11. But I had already posted a story... On the VintageVolts.com website... That talks about that. Um, but even before age 11... I was always interested... In electronic stuff. You know, cool futuristic gadgets... Same kind of gadgets that, you know, you would see modern versions of those devices all around you. You know, that digital wristwatch. Even the analog ones these days have some electronic components in them. Analog's more of the the face, the facade of timekeeping these days. Whether it's digital or analog, it's what you see that gives you a certain feeling from it. But digital watches of today, mostly LCD displays, have come a long way from the early days of LCD watches that only told the time. Yeah, starting in the early 80s, you had LCD watches which told the time, had a chronograph, had an alarm which you could barely hear when it went off, and you know had a certain degree of accuracy. If I recall, they were like... Plus or minus 15 seconds per month was the stated accuracy on most electronic watches. But before that, you had simple electronic watches. You had uh, LCD displays that only told the time. And if you press the button, it will show you the date. Uh, and just before that, you had LED watches. Before LCD displays were commercialized, effectively commercialized, you had LED displays because LED displays were around, well, effective LED displays were around before LCD displays. So you had the, the red digits making up the numbers, the seven segment displays as they call them. That creates the boxy looking eight and then can produce any other number visually just by using, lighting up the appropriate segments of seven total segments. So the original timekeeping when it wasn't a wind-up analog watch when it when it went electronic it was either powering a quartz oscillator which was helping mechanics of an analog watch move around or as most people uh, tend to think of when they say an electronic watch is one that has the digital displays and I mentioned LED watches because that was the first electronic watch I had. Is the Texas Instruments LED watch. It was the greatest thing. It cost a fortune at the time, but it was the greatest watch that I ever had. And and since that time, I was collecting all sorts of. Uh, every time a new watch with new features would come out, I would you know be anxious to get it. Um, saving up allowances or as I got older uh, saving money I got for birthdays or holiday gifts um, would go towards improving getting an improved version of what I have so from my LED watch that told me the time the date and the number of seconds that we're counting off I improved that to an LCD watch of the same manufacturer almost the same style that basically told me the same stuff. I spent more money to just get an improved display. The batteries would last a lot longer. Then after that, I think some kid at school got a uh, multi-function chronograph alarm watch, and I just had to have one of those. So once again, I saved money and got one of those. Now they could tell me the time and date, but also You know, act as a chronograph. The chronograph part was so cool, but I have yet to this day ever think that I had a good reason to use a chronograph. Uh, I never really timed anybody on a regular basis for sports or anything. I just, it was cool to have the chronograph. It just looks cool watching that count up. But I had to have the extra features. So I kept improving, getting better quality items. As, as time went on, and I was creating a history of memories of what the different watches I had as I kept you know, buying improved ones. And, and they either broke, or I sold them, or, or, or they got lost somehow in the past. And I'm finding myself today, I'm actually going and buying um, exact replacements of what I used to have. Buying my childhood, as they say. So just like my first LED watch, I had recently acquired one just like it, in in great shape at a good price. And believe it or not, I still wear it from time to time. When I put it on and I wear it and I use it, it does bring back memories of me sitting like in study hall. Uh, At the time, they really didn't call it um, ADD, but there was a certain amount of that that just kept me busy through study hall. I would just... um, keep it you know, almost under control by playing around with the watch um, you know, even uh, taking it apart a couple times <laughs> um, you know, the, the curiosity of it all that's kind of what made it break in the first place, but anyway it, it brings back those memories for good or for bad, it brings back the memories of my childhood You know, now I remember what it was like sitting in study hall in 7th grade and how big the auditorium was because that was the study hall we had to sit two seats away from each other and two rows away from each other. So they basically kept two seats between us and and the next person. So we couldn't gossip, you know, we couldn't talk too loud or else, you know, we'd disrupt the study hall and, you know, we'd get detention, that kind of stuff. You know, those are the kind of memories. So like, like music can do just a visual representation of the item A tactile representation, actually having the item in your hands, something that you used to use in the past, brings back these memories. For example, I'm looking at a box now that says, it says, Microvision, Milton Bradley Microvision. That is a portable, handheld LCD display game from 1979, I believe. That uses interchangeable cartridges. That was our idea of handheld gaming. You know. It wasn't smartphones. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't full fledged. Uh, Game Boys or. Gosh I'm losing track of what's even popular anymore. I guess most people don't do too much. Handheld gaming. If it's not on a. Some Nintendo. Variation Or. Uh, Gee, do they even still use the the PSP, the PlayStation Portable? Um, I don't know. I'll have to ask my son. You know, he's the next generation. But the microvision system, you know, that brings back memories, too. I I have one now because I liked it when I was a kid, and mine actually got lost. And I don't remember how. I think I loaned it to my brother. He took it to school. Um... Somehow it got misplaced. Maybe I'll remember someday. But it got misplaced, and for the longest time, for you know, 20 plus years, I just never had one that I could you know work with. So when I found one, I bought it. I bought some more games for it. Now I have almost the complete collection. Uh, but like anything else, when I play with this thing, when I use it, it does bring back some memories. Not to mention that, you know, to a degree, since I'm I'm used to its gameplay, it's It's, by today's standards, it's hardly anything of a technological advance. Whereas today's gaming systems use screen displays that are made up of, say, 640 by 480 pixels. You know, multiply that together, it's a lot of pixels. This one is 16 by 16 pixels. You know, really chunky dots. It's 256, uh, if I'm doing my math correctly. Two hundred and fifty-six pixels. I mean, what can you do in two hundred and fifty-six pixels? Not a whole lot for uh, you know high-quality adventure games and shoot 'em ups that we have now. But there are things you can do. It just requires a little bit of imagination. And a lot of the games at the time, electronic handheld games, required imagination to function properly. If you could not imagine what you were looking at you were going to have a difficult time comprehending the game. The Microvision's 256 pixels were more than enough to play a breakout game where you have three rows of dots, uh, a three dot wide paddle, and a, a single dot ball that would bounce between your paddle and the the, the the wall. For those who don't know what breakout is all about, you just keep trying to bounce this ball into the wall until all the pieces break out and you clear the whole screen then you go to the next one now it was enough pixels to play a slot machine game Um, even a baseball game you could play in 256 pixels and probably part of the reason why that works so well is because the visualization was enhanced or aided by the game body itself, uh, for the microvision, the cartridge had a, a painted plastic window that would look different for each game. So, the window for the baseball game for microvision had a painted-in um, baseball diamond. So, that lets you at least visualize um, how the game would play when you see these little dots moving from one corner of a diamond to the next as they were running the bases as the ball was being hit and flying out into, into left field. But the precursor to that were LED-based handheld games, like uh, Mattel Electronics Football, uh, Football 2. Uh, they had pretty much every popular sport. They had soccer, basketball, um, baseball, I think hockey. Yeah, they had hockey. That was a blue one. But instead of an LCD display, they used LEDs, which were basically red dots or almost like tick marks. Uh, They looked like little straight apostrophes. You know, they they weren't square, but they were really skinny and they had a certain height to them or length, depending on the, the way the game was played. Used our imaginations for that, too. Like for the Mattel Electronics football, you had you were looking at the field left to right, goal post to goal post, so it's like you were sitting on the 50 yard line. Uh, but spread top to bottom across the field were three rows of LEDs, and there were 10 LEDs across, so you basically had 10 yard blocks. Um, but moving your your player was a tick mark the other players were tick marks but they were dimmer so you can tell them apart from you your job was is to imagine you were a football player rushing down the line by moving your tick mark from one end of the screen to the other so many times you, you actually had to like it, it, it looped around um, It once you got off the one side it started you back on the other again and you had to simulate running you know, up to 100 yards but you had to move your tick mark as fast as you could while avoiding the other tick marks who were trying to tackle you so you only have basically a 3 by 10, 30 pixels done right to simulate players on the field both um, offense and defense and you used your imagination to do that And for those who have played them in the past but haven't seen one since they were younger, you know, you, you, if you put one in your hands right now, you'll probably say what most other people say: he "says Hey, I remember this. This was cool. I I played this all the time. It fit in my pocket. You know, it was portable. Portable electronics being a big thing back when those came out." But it still invokes those memories. You could probably remember a few places where you sat and played that thing. Maybe you played it at the family reunion just because you didn't want Aunt Gladys to come over. And, you know, there's always that one aunt in the family, right, that wants to kiss everybody. Uh, maybe you tried to avoid people just by curling up in front of this thing because the grown-ups didn't understand and, you know, they weren't going to interrupt you while you were playing because it seemed a little awkward to do so. You know, whatever the case, you know, you played it, you had fun with it, and you could probably remember why or how, or where you were when, when you played this thing. If you saw one of them today. But the appreciation of vintage electronics. Let's say from that uh, football game. Took you to the next level. Like for me. it did, I, I did actually go from the electronic handheld football. To microvision. When I was younger. And then from microvision. It led to computer gaming. I actually jumped. I actually changed track slightly. I didn't go much further into handheld gaming. In fact, I don't think there was much in the way of handheld gaming that wasn't like the Game and Watch series that Nintendo came out with that had the LCD displays with fixed shapes in the display where your imagination worked a little differently. You didn't have to imagine the players you had to imagine the motion of the players as it lit up a sequence of characters across the LCD screen that mimicked motion. Now, personally, I couldn't quite get into that. I, I didn't like those kind of screens very much. You know, Nintendo came out with a bunch of them. Then eventually, in the late 80s, Tiger Electronics was very famous for making those kind of games. Uh, they would sell shells and shells and racks full of games that would all basically be the same size and shape but would be different colors but would have the same I, I don't think it was that big maybe two inch square display that would have different characters i'll call it etched i don't know exactly what they do when they create an lcd segment on the display in a, in a character shape i'll just call it etched with different characters etched into it to simulate the gameplay that was sort of a generation, generational change for me because when I got done with the handheld games that you know, mostly had a single purpose that led to like the Microvision, which had interchangeable cartridges, I really didn't see anything better come out since the, the first interchangeable cartridges. In fact, I was one of the early adopters of the Game Boy, the original Game Boy, and that was about a 10-year span for me but when I saw the Game Boy with its high-resolution display at the time and interchangeable cartridges, I was one of the first ones to buy one. Uh, Because at the time, uh, for that, that was an improvement of the last handheld game that I had. Uh, But it took 10 years for the industry to get back into something that I liked. That aside, um, I can still appreciate owning a MicroVision I'm glad I own a Microvision. I even have a couple of those Mattel handheld sports games that I had mentioned earlier. Because that's what I grew up with. Uh, They invoke certain memories. Um, It's fun to play. Um, Even my kids like playing. Well, maybe not my daughter, but my son likes to play it from time to time. Although he has so much more to choose from these days. His attention isn't on it as often as mine would be or as, as strong as mine would be for me it's a trip down memory lane but after the microvision my idea of gaming went from portable to something that was pretty much tabletop i had an atari 2600 very first gaming console that i owned actually i co-owned that with my brother and i still have it to this day and about a year or so after that, it was computing. I, I played with enough computers going into a Radio Shack store and looking at the variations in the TRS-80 and making it do simple stuff by typing some commands in BASIC on, on the screen. I got, in, I got my very first computer called the Commodore VIC-20. And I still have that to, uh, to this day, too. And that was gaming for me at the time cartridge based on that hooks up to a TV or a computer that hooks up to a TV Um, the difference between the two is one had cheaper games, that was the Atari 2600 the other one, I could program my own games so basically I I outgrew handheld gaming and decided to sit at a desk or sit in front of the TV and play but most people most people remember the first video games they played and although they wouldn't be dying to play it again, they'll certainly welcome the opportunity to play it again if it came up. You know, if you went to somebody's house and, you know, they told you they had an Atari 2600 that they picked up at a flea market, and you used to have one when you were a kid, you. one of the first things coming out of your mouth would probably be like oh do you have fill in the blank this game cartridge probably combat maybe something a little obscure Uh, or do you have Pac-Man do you have space invaders for it I can almost bet you'll be asking that kind, kind of question but you would welcome the opportunity to play it and the same can be said for you know classic computers vintage computers you may hear me or retro computers Probably use those three words interchangeably: vintage, classic, and retro. Part of it depends on, you know, if you were a Gen Xer, uh, a baby boomer, or let's see, when did Gen, Gen Y start? I forget when Gen Y started, but I consider myself a very early Gen Xer because it was just past the tail. End. I think the baby boomer. Ended in like mid-60s. I was born in the late 60s, so uh, that would make me a, a, it's called a prototype Gen Xer. Still don't quite fit in the Gen X mold, but for the most part, I'm pretty much the same. So I'll, I'll probably be talking a lot from a Gen Xer's point of view. Like, like getting into the early computers for gaming Yeah, I was, um... Let's see. I was 15 years old when I got my first computer. And... At the time... About the only thing I could use it for... Was for games. It was expensive enough to get the computer... Even though it has... You know... Probably one-tenth of one-percent of the computing power of today's computers. Um it was expensive to get. I think it cost, in 1981 dollars, uh, $399. So, in 1981 dollars, that would have, you know, if you take $399 dollars today, you could probably get a, a workable laptop. But back then, it was an equivalent of spending, probably closer to 1, $1,500 today. So, there was a lot of computer, for the money at the time, but it was still a major expense. So, getting the computer was one thing. The computer could be hooked up to a standalone monitor, which did not, which did not have, which basically a TV without the television tuner in it. Um, and those were expensive, although they had slightly better quality picture. Um, I hooked mine up to a TV that was made in 1969, a, a Sony Trinitron, and it was a very good TV. Always had a great image on it. Worked well for the VIC-20. But we couldn't afford anything productive for it, like a printer. Printers were prohibitively expensive. They cost at least twice as much as the computer, and that's for a decent one. So I didn't use it to type up schoolwork and and, uh, submit... Some schoolwork in in uh, printed form from the computer. Then again, most teachers weren't accepting in that form, which is funny because these days try to submit an assignment to a teacher in handwritten form and see what they say. So I appreciate the fact that you know, with the right amount of money and the right amount of incentive, it was possible to. Go beyond what was accepted standard. Like with computers. If you can afford to get a computer. And a printer. There was so much you could do with that. But for me it was. It was. um, To play games. And to learn how to program. A computer. In basic. In the basic language. And I also started. Learning to program in assembler, the, the, the raw coding that the computer's microprocessor works best with, and that basically started my computer career. I was very interested in electronics at the time, but bridging electronics and computers wasn't so easy to do as it is today. So it was a game machine for me. And after I graduated high school, and I went into the uh, service, started going from station to station. I improved my computer. I stayed on the Commodore computer route. I got a Commodore 64. I got a Commodore 64 with a disk drive. Uh, let me roll back a bit. That VIC-20, the only way I could store my programs was on cassette. Because at $99, the cassette option was a lot cheaper than a disk drive that sold for $400, $600. But as with anything with technology, you get improvements, you get lower costs. So, several years later, when I bought my first Commodore 64, I was also able to buy a disk drive. Then eventually, two disk drives. And then eventually, an upgrade to a Commodore 128, which would still let me use all my Commodore 64 software. And a better disk drive then to the Commodore Amiga, which I purchased, I think, my very first year out of the service uh, using my tax return. I was able to buy a Commodore Amiga. Now Now I couldn't use any of my Commodore 128 or Commodore 64 stuff. Completely different system. But I improved it. But I still remembered the Commodore 64. And I remembered the 128. Years after having the Amiga, I... Started finding Commodore 64s and Commodore 128s and disk drives at flea markets. Uh, Really cheap. This is about the mid-90s now. Um, I found them really cheap, and I remembered having one. And it's like, oh, I used to do this with that, and I used to do that. The same stuff I said people would say when they they get in the situation. So, it was a lot cheaper to to start um, buying back my childhood there. Uh, as far as classic computers are concerned in the mid 90's so I could pick up a Commodore 64 for literally a couple dollars and a disc drive thrown in uh, may- okay, maybe I spent five bucks on the pair uh, yeah, a whole lot of money so now what? I, where did I find myself collecting it um, started with the computers, it quickly went to the video games I kind of got in it Early, so I can amass a small collection of my childhood and things I couldn't even afford as you know when I was younger, um, like various uh, video game systems, like Atari and, and and ColecoVision and a television. I mean, really, nobody could afford to buy all those at once, not not on average same thing with computers nobody could afford to get more than one computer they had to pick one and they had to stick with it you know you had you had your apple people you had your commodore people you had your radio shack people uh then then eventually the ibmers came in and pretty soon you have all this varying technology if you went the way i did you you found stuff real cheap you remembered it as a child you remembered your friend having something different but you didn't own it like maybe your friend had the apple or you had a commodore well, you went to your friend's house, played with the Apple. You remember a few things from it. And when you saw that same model, Apple II, sitting at a flea market or a garage sale, it invoked certain memories. And if the memories were strong enough and the, the price was right, you bought that. And you brought it home with you. And you used it. Tried to do the same stuff you used to do at your friend's house. You may even call your friend and say, hey, guess what I found? And then they remember stuff and they say, hey, can you still do this with it? And they'll give you a series of commands that, that invoke some sort of trick or Easter egg uh, activity in, in the thing. Or you found out where you can get games for it and you you made it work. You, you, you are reliving the memories, you're reinvoking memories, you're creating new ones. Um, new memories of older systems. So, especially when you see that, oh, at, at another garage sale, there's a TRS-80. Um, and you were like, boy, if I could only afforded one at the time. But here it is. Oh, like, I got mine. Um, I got mine for $15. The only problem was, I could have gotten two more for $15 each. Actually, no. The guy was going to give them to me because he didn't want them anymore. They were taking up space. But... At the time, I was pushing a stroller around, and that's the only thing I had to carry it, so I went with one TRS-80 that I could fit on the stroller while holding my daughter. And uh, walking at home, it was a community flea market near my house. Yeah, Some regrets that I didn't have a wagon that I could pull them in, but that aside, I never owned a TRS-80 until then. Now I'm experiencing childhood differently not my personal everyday interactions with vintage electronics but filling in some gaps doing what ifs like boy had i owned this which which way could i have went you know thought-provoking memories like yeah if i had a trs-80 or if i had uh yeah if i had a trs-80 that's more business-like would i be more into businessy use of computers than gaming use of computers like the path I went Um, in hindsight I can tell you I still preferred having my VIC-20 over having a TRS-80 TRS-80 is a great computer but I don't think it would have been as fun for me Um, it would have been somewhat limited in its abilities for the kind of activities I've enjoyed with the computers I enjoyed creating and you know, having this TRS-80 in my workshop here actually I, I've i used it I've done videos on it how to get it to work um, but still it's like it's more of a novelty for me now I, I think that if I put the TRS-80 next to the VIC-20 on the same table and started using them I'd probably be sitting on the VIC-20 more often but now I know because I was able to you know, eventually afford that and I was able to latch on to s- simple little memories like, I mean, I've used TRS 80s before I got a VIC 20. I went into Radio Shack stores and used the ones they had on display. And it invokes certain memories there. You know, I, I kind of remember the layout of the TRS 80 store, all the wood grain paddling, uh, just because I remember working on those TRS 80s. Uh, yeah, the Radio Shack store. Um, wood grain paddling everywhere. Uh, stereo systems on one wall speakers sitting down below or you know or on either sides of showcase stereo systems the big long counter where the radio shack salespersons sales would always be dressed in suit and tie and they would take your order they would actually check you out when you, when, you, when you purchase something they didn't have a cash register they filled out this they always asked for your address okay they filled out this form um with your name and address and they hand wrote the totals and and you know they took your cash and they had this secret drawer hidden underneath the counter that they would activate with certain fingers and they would make your change those kind of memories i mean vintage electronics just thinking about you know something brought me back to a popular radio shack store where just so happens to be the radio shack store that i started getting into hobby electronics and I remember all the parts and electronic kits that they had on their walls, a lot more than they have today. But from a collector standpoint, branching out into different variations of home computing and you know, console video games. Now that buying an older item is more affordable in most cases. Just creates a lot of, or reinvokes a lot of fond memories, and that's basically what I get out of uh, vintage electronics. It's just not—I wouldn't say I'm reliving the past or even obsessing over it, for that matter. It's just fun to remember what things were like. I mean, there's people who do that. It's fun to reminisce about your childhood and. About what you found was fun and even to figure out what other people thought were fun like when uh, another neighbor who maybe had an Atari computer but you never really talked to that neighbor um, you knew they had the Atari you were probably hoping that you'd like be friends with the person and would be invited over to play with the Atari computer but it never got around to that so you find an Atari computer at a cheap sale you take it home, you hook up and you, you you're like, okay, now what do I do with it? But at that point there you're doing kind of a what if what if I got an Atari computer when I was younger? Where would I be? I, I, is this fun? You're almost like learning from scratch again. You're reliving your childhood in the fact that you got a brand new 8-bit computer in front of you and you don't know what to do first. Where in the past it might be hard to buy additional stuff for it because it was you couldn't afford it. Now it's you can afford it, but it's hard to find because there's less of it. So you're kind of reliving the experience of slowly working your way up to you know, from just having the computer system, working your way up to having if if you're so inclined to do so, working your way up to a fully loaded computer system, reliving what it might have been like for somebody who took the Atari route as their first computers you know, going from the Atari 400 or 800 to the XL series or XE series to the Atari ST most of those early computers had a path to, uh, to upgrade and there's a certain appreciation in being able to do that because you can kind of appreciate what certain people went through say, me It's no lie, I'm big into Commodore stuff. So, I do have a lot of Commodore stuff in my collection. But I also have Atari computers. Not a whole lot in my collection. I have some Apple stuff. Not a whole lot. But enough to to try it out. Um, If I see somebody writing a blog post... uh, That, you know, they used to play this game on the... uh, On the Apple II... Apple IIe or something... I can actually pull out my Apple IIe, find the game some way, shape or form, get it transferred over to the Apple and play it. Yeah you know, own real hardware. I'm not talking emulation here, I'm talking on real hardware, experiencing it just like somebody would have in the past. It's, it, it's like taking somebody else's trip down memory lane. You know we do that watching TV. Yeah, both in fact and fiction I mean a lot of people like to see um, yeah just just to prove that going down somebody else's memory lane isn't isn't kooky a lot of us are guilty of doing that just by watching documentaries on TV you know, you read it you, you watch a documentary about somebody's life you're reliving their life from their point of view Not so odd about that just you know collecting vintage electronics or enjoying a piece of vintage electronics is very similar to going down somebody else's memory lane if it was something that you never owned but you can appreciate what it was like or maybe you've always wanted it and now you can finally afford it because it's only 15 bucks at, at, at a local swap meet so for future episodes of Vintage volts, I'm most likely to be taking you down those memory lanes creating documentaries of various types of vintage electronics or specific items of vintage electronics because I, I feel there's a story around it there's a story to be told and I wanted to share those stories with my listening audience and if you have any stories you'd like to share I'd be more than willing to read them or listen to them you can send me an email at podcast at vintagevolts.com like if you're driving down the road and you you got you got your stereo on it's got the built in satellite radio song comes on the 80's channel you know something from Def Leppard or Foreigner and you remember that time when you had your old beat up car, your very first car that you owned, you went out and bought the cassette tape that had that song on it, you put it in your tape player, and it ate it. That's a story to remember. Good memories aren't always, quote, good memories. They could be bad memories that had an influence, that were strong, that did greater good. For example, you know, if your cassette tape, if the old Kraco cassette tape that you bought at Kmart, or some other uh, cheap store and you bought it at Kmart for 20 bucks. that had the two 4-inch speakers that you wired up loosely underneath the dashboard is what ate your tape well, <laughs> and started eating your other tapes you weren't going to stick with that the good thing was you got rid of that piece of junk and put in something better like a Pioneer radio or a Kenwood radio or, or whatever that wouldn't eat tapes and for that matter had better so- sound quality it may have even had a digital AM FM tuner instead of that little bar that you'd have to crank the knob for so if you have the stories go ahead and write me i'd like i like to hear what you uh what you all have what what invokes um, good memories what items do you have that or or that you bought just because they invoke good memories or or do they even invoke good memories i look forward to reading them Meanwhile, I'm going to work on a topic for the next episode. Um, I don't have a steady timeline worked up yet. I want to jot down some ideas and some notes to, to at least build up. I have at least three or four episodes topics ready to go so I can kind of keep them rolling. So until the next time, I bid you farewell and thank you for listening. Stay tuned for scenes from the next episode of Vintage Volts. Take a look, take a look at police your Christmas savings department store. Zoli's has Krako Dashmaster AM-FM Multiplex Stereo Radios for your car at savings to $30. One for cassette, one for 8-track tapes. Just push in your cassette and listen to your favorite music. Or insert the 8-track tape in Krako's in-dash or under-dash model and enjoy the beautiful sounds of stereo. Your choice, only $78.88 each. Proof that holiday happiness costs less at Zoli's. And now, scenes from the next episode of Vintage Volts. The problem with them is that they really ate up battery power. But that's not the real reason why many of them were simply discarded. If you want to learn more about Vintage Volts, please go to the website at VintageVolts.com. You may also send email to podcast at VintageVolts.com. You can find us on Twitter using the name at Vintage Volts. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Vintage